Lord, as we now come to Your Word, we remember that Your Word is inspired, that it is inerrant, and that it is entirely sufficient for every situation that we face in life. For good times, for hard times. We remember, O Lord, that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, You are with us. And so we thank You for the way that Your Word instructs us. And we thank You that You have given the Holy Spirit to Your people that we may have understanding. We pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the text for us today. Give us understanding and give us a desire to not only know Your Word, but to live. By Your grace, O Father, teach us to be more than hearers. Teach us to be doers for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Psalm 41. We'll be looking at Psalm 41 today. As most of you, I think, know, the first Sunday of every month we do a psalm. We go through a psalm. Uh, That way we keep one foot in the Old Testament, but we are also doing our study in John every other week, so we keep one foot in the New Testament. Uh, All of God's Word is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, including the Old Testament. So we love the Old Testament here at New Beginnings Church. So we'll be looking at Psalm 41 today as we continue our study of the Psalms. This is a psalm that touches on a very important subject for our times, and that is the subject of compassion and mercy. Throughout the course of the past 2,000 years, the, the era of the church, Christianity has made the world a better place. It would be impossible to list all the ways that the world has changed for the better as a result of the spread of Christianity from uh, from one small place in the world uh, to, to the whole world, around the world. Uh, but we can take a glimpse at the tip of the iceberg of the ways that Christianity has made the world a better place as it has spread. For example, who came up with the idea of hospitals? An article on the University of Houston website reads this. It says, quote, Hospitals have formed slowly for 2,000 years. Doctors of classical Greece tended the sick in their homes. The methodical Romans had systematic, if brutal, means for handling wounded soldiers, but no public houses for sick civilians. Hospitals were a very altruistic Christian invention. The word itself is all mixed up with the words hotel and hospitality. By the 4th century AD, newly Christianized Romans began running homes for the sick and needy. By the 8th century, the functions of Christian hospitals or hospices were highly specialized. Some served the sick, some the needy, lepers, the insane, and orphans." Now who could argue against the fact that hospitals have helped make the world a better place? That hospitality is a good thing. And that tending to the sick and the needy is a great way to reach out to people who are helpless. Another example would be educational institutions. Educational institutions were originally founded by Christians. Uh, Many of our prestigious Ivy League universities were founded for the purpose uh, of training up clergy. They were founded by Christian Puritans who wanted to train up Puritans, uh, Puritans uh, clergy, uh, teaching people to read their Bibles. Uh, that's, why, that's why learning uh, to read was taught in school, is so that kids could learn how to read their Bibles. Uh, when 17,000 Puritan exiles arrived in New England, uh, Harvard University, for example, was founded for the purpose of training up ministers. Uh, Of course, Harvard speaks for itself today. It's a huge, very influential uh, institution that has strayed from that original purpose, unfortunately. 
But Christianity has also changed the way that people treat and view one another. It changed the way that women are viewed and treated. It was Christians like John Newton who argued for the freedom of slaves. Uh, It was Christians who fought for abolition. It was Christians who developed the underground railroad network of safe houses where slaves could escape and make their way up to free land in the north. Christians have built and founded uh, soup kitchens for the, for the poor and the hungry. I mean, there's a reason that we often refer to soup kitchens as a gospel mission. Uh, the world is a better place because of Christianity. Christians have always been known and recognized for their compassion, for their charity, for their graciousness, particularly toward the helpless particularly toward those who are outcasts from society, the used and abused in a society. And the reason for this, the reason Christians have always been known for being this way, is because Christians have values that align with God's values. And God is compassionate and gracious to the helpless. Psalm chapter 68 or Psalm 68:5 says, "A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation." And so as we come to Psalm 41 today, we see that David himself was actually in a helpless situation. He was sick, uh, and his enemies were using his condition. They were using his circumstances as a time to plot against him. David's only hope was that God would be gracious and merciful unto him while he was in this helpless condition. Now the book of Psalms has 150 chapters or 150 psalms. Uh, They're commonly divided into five separate books or five sections. Uh, There's one theory that attributes this to there being five sections of the Torah, which we've broken down into the first five books of our Bible. Uh, Those five books were all uh, originally one book, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But the first book of the Psalms uh, consists of Psalms 1 to 41. And the overarching theme of this entire section or this book of the Psalms is that God is with us. That God is with us. Psalm 1 begins this book of the Psalms by telling us that the blessed person who meditates on God's law will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers. The idea is that such a person is blessed because God is constantly with him, constantly sustaining him, constantly nourishing him through his word, blessing his endeavors. In Psalm 23, David tells us that even in the deepest and darkest valleys of life, there is no reason to fear. Why? Because God is with us. That's the theme of this entire book. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, David writes. Psalm 41 continues this theme. That God is with us. And not only is He with us, but He is for us. And He is merciful toward us. And He is gracious unto us. These elements are all found in Psalm 41. Jesus wonderfully articulated the point of this psalm in His Sermon on the Mount when He said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In other words, the point of this psalm, Psalm 41, is that because we have been shown unmerited mercy and compassion by God, we should show mercy and compassion to others. This psalm can be broken down into three main sections that we'll see as we go through it. Verses 1 to 3 show us David's attitude toward God. Verses 4 to 10 show us David's need for God. And verses 11 and 12 show us what happens as a result of David's prayer. Verse 13 is also part of that final section, but uh, verse 13 is also kind of a transition out of 
uh, the, the first book of Psalms. It's got kind of a bookend. At the end of each one of these five books of the Psalms, you find this incredible doxology. And they're all very similar as you go through the Psalms. But verse 13 has that. So it's, it's partly a bookend, and it's partly uh, David's response to praying. David's attitude having changed, having prayed. So we start with the attitude that David has toward, or that he has toward God in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 41. Let's start there, looking at verses 1 to 3. It tells us, for the choir director, reminding us that it's a song to be sung, a psalm of David. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his deathbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. Now what's kind of interesting is to see that the first book and the last book, or the first psalm and the last psalm of this first book begin with the exact same words. How blessed. Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 41 says that the person who considers the helpless is blessed. Now I don't think that it's too much of a stretch at all to say that the person who delights in God's law, the person who meditates on God's Word, which reveals God's character, by the way, will also delight in helping the helpless. Such a person will delight in showing mercy to everyone who is in need of mercy. After all, if you're at all familiar with God's holy and perfect law, you know that the law makes very specific provisions for rendering help to the helpless. And it condemns those who refuse to help the helpless. In fact, it warns them of the judgment that they will face if they are not merciful, if they are cruel to the helpless. God's people were not to be like the surrounding nations who enslaved their neighbor, who abused and misused the helpless and the outcasts in society. Now, the surrounding nations would have thought that it was complete foolishness that God would instruct us, as He does in Leviticus 19.18, saying, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself." Oh, Jesus wasn't the first to say that. That's actually found in that book that everybody hates to read because it feels like law upon law upon law. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. And God left specific examples for the people to follow. It wasn't just left up to them to figure out what that means. No, for example, Leviticus 19 verses 9 and 10 records God instructing the people, Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. I love the way he tacks that on at the end, as if to remind them, I'm the one telling you this. You you better do this. They were to be gracious. They were to be merciful. They were to be compassionate toward the helpless. Our psalm at hand begins by saying that the person who walks in obedience to instructions like that, that we just saw in Leviticus, are blessed. At least that's one way to read this opening beatitude to the 41st Psalm. There are really two ways to read these first three verses. Uh, as we've seen, uh, first it could say be saying that God will bless those who bless others, uh, specifically the helpless. But secondly, it's possible to read this as referring to God Himself. After all, the blessed man of Psalm 1 is who? It was Jesus. It was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. God Himself is eternally blessed and is gracious and compassionate to only one kind of person. The helpless. 
the helpless. So David is saying, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God is blessed because He always considers the helpless, the poor, the destitute, those who are unable to do anything to improve their situation. In fact, I think it's entirely possible and even probable that both ways of reading this psalm, this beatitude, are correct. I think it's intentionally written kind of as a double entendre. It's got a double meaning. Uh, You might say that God cares for the helpless, uh, and because He cares for the helpless, He blesses those who also consider the helpless because their heart and their desires align with God's own heart and desires. But what does it mean to consider the helpless? That's really the question that we're faced with. What does it mean to consider them? Does it mean to just be aware of the fact that they exist and uh, every time you go by them, you're like, oh, yep, so-and-so is still there on the corner, still you know, holding the sign, still in need. Uh, does it mean that we're to go home and, and be worried about them and, and think about them and just kind of hope for the best about them? Uh, in, in some respects, the word consider carries that implication, but not in the Hebrew term here. No, it includes being mindful of the helpless, Uh, but the implications of the Hebrew word go beyond just being mindful, just thinking about the helpless. It carries the implications of everything between giving attention to or considering, uh, pondering, to causing to prosper. Uh, One commentator notes that the Hebrew word is, quote, a term associated with the wisdom tradition and reflects a perceptive ability to know the right response in a given situation. End quote. So what does all that mean? What does it mean to consider? First of all, notice that David doesn't say, blessed are those who vote for politicians who will take the money of all their neighbors and uh, use that money to help the helpless. No, outsourcing is not what David had in mind here at all. He's not saying you need to to pay somebody else to do this for you. He's saying you need to do this yourselves. He's saying that the blessed person takes the responsibility on their own shoulders. And David isn't even implying that the answer to helping the helpless is always the thing that we like to do in America, which is just throw money at something that seems to be a problem. No, he's not saying that. A wise person will recognize that sometimes that might be the solution, but more often, giving money, just throwing money at a a situation, especially when it comes to helpless people, might actually cause more harm than good. Now, when we think about people who are helpless, uh, you might think of the homeless. In a place like Seattle, uh, where the homeless are, are... Everywhere. There are a lot of homeless people here. And it's a good desire. Make no mistake about it. It is a good desire to desire to help the homeless. It's a good desire. But the vast majority, what we need to understand is that the vast majority of the homeless are either mentally ill or they are addicted to drug and or drink. So what do you think they're going to do with the money that you give to them, that you throw at them. Let's just say that it's exceedingly rare that they will use it to improve their situation. It wasn't long after I became a pastor here when somebody showed up and they were looking for uh, the pastor who was my my predecessor, uh, the guy who was here before me. And uh, he, he's moved, he had moved away at that point. And so I said, you know, I'm sorry, you know, he, he's moved away. Uh, what can I do for you? And he said, well, I... I I need to get to uh, the Everett Gospel Mission. I I need some help. And so I said, well, you know, I've I've got some things I've got to do, but when was the last time you ate? And he said the last time he'd eaten was like three days ago. So I said, listen, I've I've got some stuff I've got to take care of, but here's $10. Go buy yourself something to eat. I came back about half an hour, 45 minutes later, and he was passed out drunk on these stairs back here leading up to the office. Uh, we still brought him back uh, up to the Gospel Everett Mission, but they even wouldn't take him because now he was drunk. <laughs> Giving him money was not something that helped him in his situation. So, it's exceedingly rare that if you just throw money at 
the helpless, particularly when it comes to the homeless, that, it will, that they will use it to improve their situation. So if throwing money at them isn't the, uh, isn't the solution, what is? And the answer that David would have us come to is that we consider them. That is that we consider on a case-by-case basis what the best way to remedy their situation is. Maybe it's money. For some people it might be money. But maybe it's teaching them a life skill and teaching them how to work. Maybe it's sharing the Gospel with them. Maybe it's taking them to a restaurant and buying them a meal there. But how will you know? How are you going to know which option is best for that person? And here's where it gets difficult. By talking to them. By talking to them and considering them on a case-by-case basis and thinking wisely about their situation. Did David ever do this? Absolutely. David was willing to show mercy to King Saul. King Saul was was seeking David's life, and when David had the chance to take Saul's life, King Saul's life, he didn't. Uh, He showed him mercy when King Saul was extremely vulnerable, to say the least. Or, Or consider the story of Mephibosheth found in 2 Samuel chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, he fell and became lame. So Mephibosheth was an heir of King Saul, who would have had a right to the throne, by the way. But he was completely unable to help himself because when he was dropped as his nurse was fleeing, uh, his feet were somehow injured and he was never able to recover. David called Mephibosheth to be brought before him. And as Mephibosheth prostrated himself humbly before David, the king said, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Now what we need to know about that is that it would not have been unusual for every heir existing to be put to death in that time because they would have been viewed as a threat to the king's throne. But David goes on, instead of killing Mephibosheth, he goes on to show him mercy. He goes on to appoint a servant to tend to Mephibosheth and instructs his servant saying, all that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Why did Mephibosheth need this? Because he couldn't walk. How was he supposed to eat? How was he supposed to take care of himself in that day and age if he couldn't walk? The truth is, he eventually would have probably starved to death. So did David consider the helpless? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, he did. And in that sense, David's heart aligned with God's heart because God considers the helpless as well. In fact, God considered the helpless when He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. We were helpless rebels who hated God, who defied God. We we were rebels both by nature and by choice. We were sinners both by nature and by choice. And we could do nothing to improve our situation. And we wanted to do nothing to improve our situation. We could not reach up to God could not give Him what He required of us, so He came into the world and provided what He required of His people. A perfect sacrifice for sin. A sinless sacrifice for sin. So the psalm goes on to tell us in verses 1-3 to that there are actually seven things that God will do for this type of person who considers the helpless. First of all, the Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. That's in verse one. Verse uh, or number two, the Lord will protect him. Number three, uh, verse two, the Lord will keep him alive. Four, the Lord will bless him in the land. Five, the Lord will not give him over to the desire of his enemies. Six, verse three, the Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. And number seven, in his illness, God will restore him to health. Now, if you study the pattern 
of these seven things carefully, what you'll see is that David moves from the very general uh, that uh, you know times of the, the Lord will deliver him from times of trouble. What does that mean? Well, that could mean a lot of things. So it's very general. So he moves from the very general to the specific. To in his illness you will restore him to health. That's a very specific, a very particular situation. The implication of this movement from the general to the very specific that. The specific need that David had is that God does care for His people in a, in a very general sense, but that He's also able to care and provide for us and to tend to us according to our specific needs, our specific situation. In David's situation, he himself was ill, and thus he himself was helpless. In fact, the past few psalms have also been written while David was ill. All probably during the same illness. But while he was helpless, his enemies were plotting against him. But he trusted that God would sustain him. He trusted that God would vindicate him. It's the same thing, by the way, that Jesus experienced. He did nothing but good. He showed nothing but kindness to people. He healed the sick. He healed the lame. The masses, nevertheless, hated him. They turned against him. And they demanded that he be murdered upon a cross. They they might have thought that they won the day when he was, but God restored him to health, resurrecting him from the dead on the third day. So we can see how this psalm, how what David's written here, actually applies to Jesus in a full sense. Like David Friends, we should be a people who are known for our kindness, for our mercy, for our graciousness toward the helpless, for our compassion. Because God showed mercy and compassion to us when we were helpless. Now that requires time. It it requires maybe some awkward encounters. It requires consideration. It requires wisdom. And it requires personal sacrifice. But it doesn't demand as great a personal sacrifice from you as God has offered for you. So let us therefore consider the helpless, knowing that the person who does so is not only blessed, but they are imitating Christ. Now as we move into the second section of this psalm in verses 4-10, to we see that uh, David's plea unto God was really for one thing. It was for mercy. It was for graciousness to be uh, poured out upon David. Let's look at verses 4-10. to David continues writing, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, and raise me up that I may repay them. Now, if you look at the way the the psalm is probably broken down in your Bibles, especially if you have a study Bible, you'll see that there's kind of a break after verse 9, and uh, verse 10 is put in with verses 10 to 12. Uh, the reason that I've included that in this, uh, this section is because you'll notice that both verse 4 and verse 10 have the same plea, the same request, and that is that God would be gracious toward him. Now, what does it mean to be gracious? It means to show grace toward someone. So, what is grace? Grace means getting what we don't deserve. Not to be confused with mercy. We put mercy and grace together, but grace is getting what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. 
Now you might think that David is saying that God owes him grace and owes him mercy because of the mercy and the graciousness that David has shown to others. But it's actually just the opposite if you consider deeply what David is saying. By pleading for graciousness, by pleading for grace, David is saying, in essence, what I'm asking for, I could never in my lifetime deserve. So David is trusting that God shows grace and mercy to those who show grace and mercy, but he's not claiming to be entitled to God's grace or mercy. By virtue of their definition, mercy and grace are never and can never be deserved. It has to be unmerited. As soon as it's merited, as soon as it's deserved, we're not talking about grace or mercy anymore. Now we're talking about justice. So David prays, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. And that is the perfect way to approach God. The only way that we can approach God is not by our merit. It has to be by grace, since all of us have sinned against Him. The best way to see ourselves is to see ourselves as David sees himself, as unworthy recipients of God's grace. And not only that, but as sinners who have sinned against God. Notice that this prayer, this part of the, of the psalm, begins with a confession of his sin. He knows that if he's going to come before God and ask for anything, number one, it has to be by grace. Number two, he can't stand before God as a defiled sinner. He has to be cleansed by God's grace. So that's how this prayer begins. By confessing that he's a sinner. So David isn't saying, God, do this for me since it's what I've done for others. Since it's what I've done for the helpless. You know who approaches God that way? Really religious people approach God that way. They come up to God with a list of all the reasons that they deserve what they are asking for. God, I've, I've given this much to the church. Or, God, do you remember the one time I, I did this or did that? Uh, God, do you, do you see how many Sundays in a row I've gone to church now? On the basis of these things, here's my request. That's a terrible way to come to God. That's coming to God on the basis of your own merit. And that's how the extremely religious approach God. That's how the Pharisees approached God. And since such a person has no merit, God doesn't listen to them. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. But the thing is, if you come to God and you're asking for something that isn't according to His will, which is the only way that the natural man, the unregenerate man, knows how to pray. If you come to God this way, they're, they're saying, God, I want you to act according to my will, not yours. Now, as we've noted in the past few Psalms, we don't know what kind of illness David had. It was apparently pretty bad. But he clearly saw a connection between some sin that he was guilty of, some sin that he had committed, and his suffering. When David says, heal my soul, the implication here is that it's not only his body that needs to be healed. It is his body, but it's more. He's essentially saying, by your grace, O God, heal me. Heal all of me. Heal my heart, my soul, and my body. So he's saying that he needs physical healing, yes, but he's also saying that he needs spiritual healing. He needs to be spiritually restored as well as being physically restored. So the truth of the matter is, whether it's David we're talking about or if it's you we're talking about or me we're talking about, we have nothing to bring before God as a means of bartering, as a means of arguing with Him or pleading with Him. All we can bring to God is sin. And thus, whenever we ask God for anything, we must ask that it be done 
Not on the basis of, of our merit, but on the basis of His grace and His mercy. If we come and ask to be healed in a spiritual sense, we know what His Word promises. That if we confess our sin, God who is righteous and just will forgive us and cleanse us of our sin. Not on the basis of our merit though. Not because we deserve it. But on the basis, if anything, on the basis of Christ's merit. On the basis of Christ's blood which was shed for us. So David, as he writes this, David is in a state of despair as he prays this because his enemies were completely unlike God. God considers the helpless. David's enemies not only don't consider the helpless, but they're looking to take advantage of the fact that David was helpless. They are completely lacking in graciousness. They are completely lacking in mercy. They were cold-blooded and ruthless looking to see what might work to their advantage in David's condition rather than considering that David was helpless and trying to figure out how to help David. So David tells us four specific things that these enemies of his were doing as he was sick. He was laying there helplessly ill. The first thing they did in verse 5, David says, My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? Imagine being sick and knowing that there are people talking about you like that. When's he going to die? When's his name going to perish? They're hoping that David doesn't have a whole lot more time, uh, and they want to take advantage of that. Uh, David, you know, we know that he had enemies throughout his life. Even before he was the king, he had enemies. King Saul was his enemy before David was appointed king. Uh, later on in, in his life, even David's own son Absalom turned against him and became his enemy as he attempted to turn Israel against David in order that he, in order that Absalom might become the rightful king of Israel. So given that David is described as a man after God's own heart, you might get the idea that because David was a very godly and, and kind man, that he didn't have enemies. But nothing could be further from the truth. He had plenty of enemies despite the fact that he was godly. Despite the fact that he was kind and gracious unto others. But why? Ultimately, you know, if, if you were to, to get a list of, of David's enemies that are provided for us in Scripture, what you would see is that they almost always had something in common. And that is, they were jealous of the fact that David was Israel's anointed king, appointed king. That he was the one that God had anointed for that position. They wanted the power. They coveted that power that David had, the grace that David had been given for themselves. The ironic thing about coveting. Why, why do you think it's so bad to covet? It's because when you covet, what you're really saying to God is, what you've given me isn't enough. I deserve more. I'm worthy of more. I want more than what God has given me. So really, what coveting boils down to is discontentment with God. It's discontentment with God. So guard your heart against discontentment. Because discontentment turns into coveting just like that. The second thing that David's enemies were doing tells us in verse 6. They're coming to see him and they're speaking falsehoods about him. He indicates that they're saying one thing to his face... But then when they leave the room, they're saying something else. So say they come to him on, on, his, uh, on his sick bed, and they say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that, that you're not doing well. I, I'm praying for you. I, I hope that there's uh, improvement in your situation. Is there anything I can do for you? But the second they leave his room, they're saying, man, he looks terrible. Be patient because he's going to be dead and gone soon. So just keep hanging in there. Don't make him mad, and things will be better soon. God hates hypocrisy. And so does David. And so should we, by the way. And understandably so. Third, verses 7 and 8. 
David says to God, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying a wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down he will not rise up again. This is a poetic way of saying uh, the same thing basically that Job's friends were saying, and that is the reason that David is sick is because he is such a bad sinner. The reason that he is sick is because God is punishing him. Now there are two problems with that. The first thing is that you're saying that you haven't sinned against God. Because if God punishes people who sin, and He's punishing this person, well, why isn't He punishing you? God has the right to allow a person to suffer as a result of their sin. I mean, if you fornicate, you might get a venereal disease. That's one example of how sin might be connected to an illness or to suffering. But sometimes people just get sick and suffer because we live in a fallen world. And this fallen world is filled with all kinds of bad bacteria and viruses that can do all kinds of crazy things to us. All that to say that it's dangerous and foolish to presume the reason God is allowing somebody to get sick and to suffer. When people presume such a thing, not only are they saying, I'm sinless and therefore God isn't punishing me, but they're also maligning the person suffering and they're also seeing God as a God who is refusing to pardon when nothing could be further from the truth. God loves to pardon. God is eager to pardon. God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. In Ezekiel 33.11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. It is sick and twisted to assume the opposite about God. Fourth, maybe the worst of all, we see in verse 9 that at least one of these enemies that David is, uh, seizes against him and that he's got in mind is somebody in whom he had placed a very high degree of trust. He's been betrayed. And not only has he been betrayed, but he's been betrayed by somebody he would have considered to be a close friend. We know that this kind of thing does happen, especially in politics with kings and presidents and so on. And it happened with David. He was betrayed several times. He was betrayed by his son Absalom. He was betrayed by um, one of his own counselors, Ahithophel, who sought to help Absalom overthrow David as a result of uh, Absalom's desire to overthrow David. So who does David have in mind here as he writes Psalm 41? Who is this that betrayed David here? Uh, we don't know. Maybe it's Ahithophel. It could be anybody because we don't know everything about David's life. But we can assume that he was betrayed more than once. But it's even possible, if, if we think about it, it's possible that this person who has betrayed David is somebody who at one point in his life, David showed graciousness toward. David saw them as being helpless and he helped them. It's possible that, that this person is one of those people, whoever it is. It's somebody that David had even fed. It's somebody that David had even shared a meal with at some point. Now, of course, we probably recognize that the Lord Jesus was betrayed by somebody close to him as well. One of the twelve disciples, Judas Iscariot. In fact, if you read this carefully, you probably heard a little bell ringing in your mind uh, because you see that this is something that Jesus quoted. He quoted from this psalm when uh, Judas betrayed him at the Last Supper. So this section ends with David praying to God again in verse 10, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Ooh, that last part. That strikes a lot of people as kind of harsh. People get uncomfortable with that and have had trouble with that specific petition because it sounds like David is saying, heal me, restore me, so that I can seek vengeance. I'm bloodthirsty. That's not what David was doing. Uh, that kind of a prayer does, if, if you see it that way, that does seem to be completely at odds with the type of prayer that Jesus offered on the cross against those who hated Him as He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
That's a gracious prayer. That's a good prayer. But what we need to understand is that there is a huge difference between David praying as a person, just on on an individual level, just the average person, the common person, and David praying as one whom God had appointed as king of Israel. What's the purpose of the king? Romans chapter 13 tells us what the purpose of the civil magistrate is. The purpose of the civil magistrate, according to Romans 13, is rewarding and protecting those who do good and punishing those who do evil. One commentator notes, quote, it may be added that punishment of treason is among the duties of a faithful ruler. Our soft age has largely overlooked this responsibility in its overly sympathetic attitude, end quote. So with that said, David was not seeking to be malicious or vengeful as an individual, but rather as the king of Israel whom God himself had specifically appointed to that position and to that role for that purpose. So I believe it's safe to say that David only desired here to do what was right in God's eyes. The third section, the third and final section of this psalm shows us David's attitude after having prayed. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. David continues saying, By this I know that you are pleased with me, because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity, and you set me in your presence forever. I think it's only appropriate that this psalm as the conclusion of the first book of Psalms, ends on a positive note with David having a confident trust in God. He knows that he is loved by God. He knows that he is forgiven by God. He knows that God is faithful. So he doesn't speak in the future tense. Notice, he doesn't say, by this I know that you will be pleased with me. What he says is in the present tense. He says, by this I know that you are pleased with me. He knows that having humbly confessed his sin before God, that God has been faithful to forgive him. His enemies may think that God is punishing David endlessly, but David knows, David is certain that his suffering is going to end, if not in this life, then in eternity. You set me in your presence forever, David says. So even if his sickness should continue, even if his suffering should persist, David's enemies would not ultimately triumph over him. God would sustain him. God would uphold him. David's confidence here isn't in himself. It's entirely where it belongs, in God. Regardless of what happens. James Montgomery Boyce notes this. He says, quote, The saints have their share of victories, but they also triumph at other times, times the world would call defeat. They are always victorious. What does that mean? It means that whatever your situation looks like, you're still victorious. Even if you should suffer and die, you're still victorious because Christ was victorious over sin and death, and we are in Christ. This is why Paul would say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where, oh, death, is your sting? He wasn't saying that he wasn't going to die. He's saying that death doesn't have the final word, ultimately. And so it won't triumph over him. And Christ's resurrection from the dead proves it. The only thing that death can do is usher us into God's presence. And for that reason, to live is Christ and to die is the first book of the psalms psalms 1 to 41 they're about god being with us but they are also the foretelling of the story of christ in david's own life and song christ is the blessed man of psalm 1 christ is the king who will be anointed by god in verse 2 who will be victorious over the nations the whole earth will be filled with his glory though he was despised and rejected by men it pleased god to crush him 
as He bore our sin, as He bore our shame, covering all who will believe in Him with His own perfect righteousness. Our God reigns forevermore. And this was David's confidence. God considers the helpless. God saw that we were helpless to save ourselves, and so He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to provide what He, as a perfect judge, as a righteous judge, requires. What does He require? He requires a perfect mediator to be our substitute and to stand in our place in order that His perfect life might be credited to us and that He might carry our sin and our shame and our guilt away from us forever. And when you understand that, and when you have the same confidence in God that David had, it changes everything for us. Because when we realize that we have already been shown the greatest unmerited mercy and compassion by God, we too should be eager to show mercy and compassion to others who cannot possibly do anything against us. They cannot possibly sin against us worse than we have sinned against God, and yet He has been gracious and kind unto us. So how appropriate it is to end the first book of the Psalms with a beautiful doxology. Look at verse 13 with me. God takes us from despair to doxology, just like He did with David, just like we see with David as He concludes this psalm. When we read the first book of the Psalms, and when we understand that God is with us and for us, our hearts can joyfully join in with David, singing as he does in verse 13, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonderful thing it is to consider that You are with us. To consider that through this journey in this world, on this side of glory, we're not separated from You but that You are faithful to be with us even unto the end. Thank You for that assurance. Thank You for that promise. And thank You for the comfort and the confidence that we can gather as a result of these things. We pray, O Lord, that You would teach us to be a people like David after Your own heart. We pray that You would conform us to the image of Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, that as You sanctify us, as You grow us in Christ's likeness, that we would more and more reflect Your heart. Teach us, O oh Lord, to consider the helpless. Not for the applause of the world, but for the glory of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.